Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fido? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. AFC? NIO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Today, we add some international flavor to the show. My guest today has worked in the space program for over two decades on two different continents on projects ranging from the International Space Station to commercial Earth observation satellites. It's about as eclectic a career as you can have in space without ever leaving the ground, and that makes him a Terranaut in my book books. Daniel Shulton, welcome to Terranauts. Thank you, Ian. Happy to be here. So, so um, you are not from Canada or from from the United States. Mm-hmm, that's correct. I was. <laughs> so you're 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 from uh, the Netherlands originally. That's right. I am Canadian by choice and Dutch by born by birth. There you go. So, so how does someone who was born in the Netherlands become interested in the space program? Well, um, I can tell you, Ian, that uh, I never planned to become a terranaut or or an astronaut for that matter. I, um, I was doing my studies of mechanical engineering in the, in the east of the Netherlands, in, in Enschede. And uh, my professor at the time, he said, um, do you want to do your master's thesis uh, at a company? And I thought it was interesting to do something different. And, uh, and that company happened to be uh, Fokker Space, the space division of the aircraft company. And uh, I went there for a year in Leiden, in the west of the Netherlands, and um, and did um, my master's thesis on uh, nonlinear, multi-body dynamics of deploying solar panels, and uh, that was a lot of fun. I found it really interesting, and uh, and after that they 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 asked me to stay, so the the, the study became a job and. Uh, and uh, and I moved to Leiden and and lived there um, till the year two thousand. Wow! And so, what what did uh, Fokker Space have you do when you started work there full time? Um, so I worked on the. Uh, it was a very interesting project, the European Robotic Arm. And okay, so, so the European Robotic Arm is probably the the best uh, space piece of space robotics that nobody's ever heard of. Honestly, uh, absolutely, it's brilliant. It, 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 <laughs> and 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 it's unfortunately in storage in Moscow. Um, the story here is is that um, the European Space Agency uh, wanted to increase the astronaut time on the International Space Station. Sure. So they they made a deal with Roscosmos and the Russian Space Agency. And to trade a robotic system for more astronaut time for Europe. Right. And uh, the Dutch government decided that it was a program that they wanted to support. And they um, they took the lead on that program and, and, and it became a, a, an, an ESA program of choice. And uh, with several, I would say, probably 12 different countries involved in Europe uh, with Fokker Space, later renamed to Dutch Space, ah, okay. uh, uh, leading, the, leading the program. 
and with with ESA as the customer. And uh, when I joined the company, um, I think the program was underway for like two years. So just completed PDR, right? And uh, and I was very lucky to to jump in, and and uh, of course uh, that. That program needed a simulator and that this complex dynamics, so that was right up my wheelhouse. And uh, and I started working on that and got exposed to to a very very interesting space program. Yeah, so so Dutch Space actually built a fully space qualified arm that that at one point everybody expected was actually going to end up on the space station. Yes, it's completed. It's done. I think I think it was completed a few years after I left for Canada, and and the Russians took delivery of it, and and I, I believe the system is in Moscow, and has been refurbished from time to time, and some and plans are there are still plans to launch it, but the problem is it it, it doesn't have a ride. It doesn't have a. It, it cannot be launched. Um, by itself, it needs uh, it's a module to sit on while it's being launched. Right. And that that particular module, I forgot the name of it. So um, something it analogous to the mobile base system that the that the that the existing arm sits on on the U, right? Yes. Yeah. But but they, just for people who don't know, the the, the space station uh, RMS or the Canada Arm Two uh, only actually attaches on the U.S. side of the International Space Station, right? That's right. That's correct. The U.S. and I think the European um, part as well. Right. Uh, but, but it is uh, it is uh, there is a border when it comes to the Russian segment. They they were planning to have their own system delivered by Europe, but. They never got to the point of actually uh, launching it. Interesting, which is really unfortunate because I mean the whole system was developed and and, and finished. So yeah, that that's a uh, lot of work uh, to go into that for it never to see uh, time on orbit. Uh, yes, and it is a bit of a shame, but yeah, one of those things that are not really under your control. No, I'd say so. So you didn't get to space that way. Um, what, no. what eventually? Uh, what drew you uh, to Canada? Uh, well, um, that's the risk of going to International Space University. I met somebody there. We got together. She was from Vancouver. She lived with me from in the Netherlands for a while, and then we decided to move to Canada. Um, so in the summer of 2000, we got married, and um, and I had a job interview at right. MDA so, in Vancouver. So you went from working on the European space arm to the company that makes the Canadian space arm, but they didn't want you to work on the arm. Um, I had my eyes on Vancouver at the time. Oh, I see. So, so and uh, yeah, it's kind of ironic that that. And with a bit of robotics background, I didn't end up in Brampton, but I didn't I ended up in, in Richmond. But um, ah, I didn't mind. Um, uh, the uh, I got to meet some really interesting people, and and I was very fortunate to be interviewed by Dave Caddy and Brian Gilliam, who, who became my mentors in the first couple of years at MBA. And, and uh, so what? So you didn't end up working on on the space station of the arm. Started working on a on a very different part of the space business. And what was that? 
So at that time, um, MDA was um, just underway with with Redisat 2, uh, which was an uh, actually um, for MDA in in Richmond, the first space hardware program, and um, and on the lookout for additional programs to take undertake. And um, when I when I had my interview with with Dave and Brian. They, they said, well, how about you start in January? Uh, we don't know what you will be doing, but it will be interesting. So uh, I said, that's okay. And uh, and so the interesting bit was actually sending me back to Germany to um, figure out uh, what this company RapidEye was about. And, uh, and that became my main task for the first couple of years at MDA. And what, and what was RapidEye about? So RapidEye was uh, started as a, as, a, uh, as a startup in Germany and, uh, by a couple of very smart uh, German engineers. And they had figured out that um, there was a gap in the remote sensing market. And it was somewhere between the, the big large area coverage satellites like Landsat with, with a fairly coarse resolution. And then uh, on the other end of the spectrum, having the high resolution satellites with very small coverage, but but of course with, 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 with a good sub one meter resolution. Right, so. so they thought that if, if, if they could create a system that was cheap, deliver almost daily revisit of medium resolution data, they would be able to serve a part of the market that was, was currently not being served. So essentially there, there were people who liked the data that, the, uh, the kind of data that Landsat uh, produced, but they really wanted it on a daily revisit rate. And that was something that the high resolution satellites couldn't do because they, uh, they're, you know, taking data that that fine just meant that they weren't getting back to the places often enough. Is that kind of the difference they were trying to split? That's right. And and, and, and in addition to that, uh, coverage was also a, a, a big deal in the sense of uh, you, you would need to cover large areas every day in order to make make the price points right work. so in, in order to generate enough different data that there'd be enough people who would want to buy it to make it worthwhile exactly and- so they, they they thought that they were they would be able to to make a business out of it if they if they would be able to get the system up and running for about 100 right. million euros so, so really, and this is this is in the early two thousands. But this is very much, uh, you know, people may not appreciate. This is a completely different model um, than the one that you came from, the civil space side. This is a group of people who who believe that there is a market, um, and who just believe that if they can solve the problem in a in a uh, an economical way, that they can actually sell something to that market that will that will give them a profitable business. There was no government involvement at all. There was a little. There was there was government support in the form of of um, subsidies and incentives for uh, right. for the business case, but there was no space agency involvement as such in the sense of the looking at the requirements and and and, and overseeing the program. That was purely done on a right. commercial basis, 
and it was really interesting to see. It was indeed completely different from the, the governmental um, space programs. Uh, for example, um, uh, so there was a large amount of debt financing right. involved in this, and which was project financing, and and the banks just had a requirement that. Uh, the project was not allowed to be longer than right. three years. So the schedule of the program became three years. And and as you and I know, uh, doing a space program in three years is, is ambitious. Words that involve an expletive and crazy might also be ones that you could apply to that. But um, yeah, and, and actually the, the interesting thing about this is this model to some people out there doesn't sound that that far out there in 2020, but uh, in 2001 or two, um, this was not the way space projects got done. I think we, in retrospect, and we didn't call it that way, this was new space. Yeah, this was new space before it was new. Yeah. And so, so that must, so, so uh, what was the, the goal, you know, the, what was the project that you had to accomplish in three years to get, to get rapid eye on orbit to the point where the, the banks would sign off on it being complete? So, so our job was to deliver this system of five medium resolution optical satellites in orbit, to deliver them in orbit turnkey. So we had to, show, demonstrate to, to the customer and, and of course, to, to their financial stakeholders that the system was working and only then um, they would make the final um, acceptance payment. Right. And, and there was a large penalty for delivering late and there was a large penalty for delivering something that did not meet the performance. So, so no pressure at all? No, no, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> 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 Actually, it, there was a lot of pressure. And yeah, were, were there were there some conversations long about two years and three four months um, that that got a little intense? Um, you know, in the project team. Um, I, no, I, I actually not. Um, what was really interesting to see that is that with that schedule pressure there was a focus for everybody involved to run the program in a certain manner. Hmm. So project reviews, gate milestone reviews were done completely differently, completely different from, from what I was used to until that point in, in governmental space. Right. Um, I mean, we, we completed CDRs with, 10 RIDs right. where, where I've had, I've, I've gone to reviews with, with, with like a thousand RIDs. Uh, yeah. 10 and, RIDs in the first two minutes would be uh, the typical experience. <laughs> exactly. So, um, and because everybody know, knew that it was in everybody's interest to focus on the main issues. Right. What really matter. And, right. and what was really interesting is, is we started the program with a, with a, I'd say 20, 30 page mission requirements document. Mm -hmm. And and halfway through the program, we agreed with the customer saying that's too much work to to keep track of all those requirements. Interesting. Let's boil it down to a set of ah, about 10, 10, right. 12 key parameters that we want to track right. and uh, say, are we, are we delivering on those right. 
performance characteristic. I, I will allow us how that's not normally the way the progression works. Normally, you, you don't start out with a, a, a document, a requirements document, and make it smaller as the program progresses, right? No, yeah, we made it smaller, it, it, which is interesting. And, and, and anyway, so we, we, I think we completed the spacecraft in, in, in we didn't quite make, meet the three years. Right. Uh, and we delivered a program, I think, we launched in three years and 10 months. And then three months later, we, we handed over the keys right. to RapidEye. So, so did you go to the launch? I did not. Um, we had only one person at the launch, and we did not have money for a video link. So we we had Larry Reeves right. on the cell phone giving a live report as a play by play from a, from a bunker in, in bunker in Baikonur, or where was where was the launch? Yeah, he was in the bunker, and 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 uh, there's, a, there's a funny or not so funny story with it. Um, so we had Larry in the bunker. He was on the phone, and he was on a loudspeaker in Germany for, I'd say, three, four hundred people, dignitaries, poli- sure. local politicians, and so on, giving this live report. Right. And it was launched on the Dnieper, which is a fascinating missile um, because it's steam ejected out of the silo, and then it falls back a little bit, or at least it looks like that. And then the main engine ignites. Sure. So, so that that's that will be an interesting point in in everybody's lives, just between the time that it falls back and the time that it comes out again. I imagine. Uh, absolutely. So so everything went well, and Larry was reporting it, and I don't remember how far the bunker was from from the launch site, but it what we hadn't thought through was that it would take ten fifteen seconds for the sound to arrive right. at Larry's place. And so at that point, we all, we heard a large noise boom and for we could not hear anything for a minute and a half. And during that minute and a half, we thought that the mission had failed, right. that the rocket had exploded and everybody was white. <laughs> <laughs> and we had no idea that everything was fine. And then, then we could hear Larry again. So it, it was just that it took that long for the noise to get there, and then it was overwhelming when it did? did? Yes, we couldn't hear a thing. It, we thought it had exploded. Wow. And, uh, anyway, everybody elated. <laughs> that went yeah, well, right. of course. Well, it was obviously a memorable experience. So so, yeah. uh, so three months after that, you, you basically proved that it was working and handed over the keys. And um, where did you go after that? So then I was allowed to come back to Canada. <laughs> so uh, I take it you spent a lot of time in Germany during that project. Yeah, so my, my job was to, uh, as part of the program, was was to manage this subcontractor, um, Jena Optronic, in in the, in the town or the city Jena, in the former East Germany at the right. time, and spent a lot of time in Germany. It was it was a fascinating time as well. Um, um, but then back to back to MDA and uh, back to Richmond in BC, working on on various uh, CSA programs mostly. Right. Um, uh, was ha- uh, fortunate to to lead the uh, fa- uh, the Radiosat Constellation mission RCM uh, Phase BC negotiations with the Crown. Right. 
where we uh, figure out basically the design period right. for the, for that mission. Right. And together with our Canadian partners, uh, Comdef at the time and uh, Magellan. So I, I've said before, uh, it, there is a truth to the fact that one does tend to get to space by going to a lot of meetings. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. We we that was a was a long process to 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 get that program um, on the road. Uh, or at least get phase BC on the on, well, on the well, road. Well, to, to put that in perspective, that you must have started working on RCM two thousand and five four. Well, even before yeah. that, uh, so so we did we did a mission concept study. If my memory serves me correctly. Year two thousand and two or two thousand and three, right. and then a phase A. So, but to put it in perspective, uh, in RCM launched. Like last June, yep. So, so Rapid Eye took three years, uh, and by my quick calculation, RCM took seventeen. That's true. We took four times as long for a much more uh, a significantly more complex sure. mission. Of course, we, sure. should, we should if we should be honest, and and a completely different environment and. And, and context for the customer as well. well. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm poking fun at how long it took, but, but really, actually, I think there is a, there is a point to be made that, that um, uh, to some people that may seem like a, you know, a very inefficient program and, and, and they would say, well, cause the government ran it, it was inefficient, but I don't, I don't actually think that's true. I, I think that it, it's just actually, as you said, it's a measure of the fact that when you work for, particularly for governmental space programs, the, the customer genuinely has a different objective, right? The government needs to demonstrate that it's, it spends the taxpayers funds efficiently right. and, and and correctly and 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 that the risks that the government undertakes are um, acceptable or or at least understood um, in the commercial world you you have a lot more freedom to deal with those 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 topics so um, you can move a lot faster and and make decisions a lot faster and um, one thing that that worked really well in, in a commercial program like RapidEye. We had direct access to the stakeholders. Yes. We could we could get a decision within a, within an hour to go a, to A right. or B. A space agency does not have that no. luxury, especially with a large program like RCM, where there is a committee, there's a stakeholder platform, sure. the users in the government departments. Um, they just don't have the ability. No, there's there's no um, reducing the requirements to, to two pages in a government program. <laughs> no, it, that would be hard, and and uh, uh, I don't think we can expect that. No, and, and that, that's my point. Is uh, it's un, it's unfair in some ways to compare the two because they're trying to do they're trying to do different things, and and um, I don't think anybody would would complain that RCM has not ended up being a very successful program, right? I think it's going to be a fantastic program. I, I, what I fully expect is is with Radarsat two, we only started to 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 scratch the surface of what is possible with synthetic aperture right. radar. With 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 RCM, we really can turn over turn open the floodgates as a country 
to start using this data. And I, I think it will become even more ingrained in just the day-to-day decision-making of various government departments, but also commercial undertakings will, will benefit For those who, who aren't uh, technically familiar, what, what does synthetic aperture radar give you that, that something like a camera like RapidEye didn't? Um, well, the big benefit, of course, of synthetic aperture radar is is that we can look through clouds. We 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 don't have to worry about whether it's cloudy or not. We can always take an image. Um, so so now it doesn't look like a pretty color picture. And we mostly we measure surface roughness and reflection and, and hard surfaces. And so so the image looks different, but the big benefit is is you image you get an image from when you want an image, so that's the big benefit. Together with probably um, a very large coverage area that you can. So, so the innovation with with RCM is that it's not just one satellite; it is in fact a constellation, right? It's three of them. They work in concert. They fly in a tube, an orbital tube. So every four day, you have one satellite that will have exact geometric um, configuration so you can you can do very detailed uh, um, comparisons of what has changed in the four-day period wow and that is going to be a really interesting feature of rcm and and Mm. there's no other system out there right now that can do that on the skill that RCM can. So it must have been an interesting journey. You know, a lot of people don't, for a program that long, you know, aren't on it for the, so almost the, the entire length of the program. But but you basically were there from the beginning and, and all the way to launch. Um, well, my role at, at the tail end of the program was, was certainly limited, but I did have, um, I was lucky um, that I, um, was able to host a number of tours. So when we had the the final assembly in in Saint Anne de Bellevue in in Montreal, right, NDA, um, which was about a year and a half period of testing of these spacecrafts and in various configurations, we decided to invite politicians, uh, key stakeholders in the government to come have a look, right. And this, this is really a once-in-a-decade opportunity to sure. see this fossil spacecraft. So, um, so we, we had about 150, 200 people go through, senior decision makers in the government, uh, including the prime minister, actually, oh, yeah. um, uh, having a look at, at the spacecraft. Yes, yes, we, we even let them uh, open up a panel and, right. and do something with the spacecraft, which is kind right. of fun. But I remember giving a tour to um, Thomas Moker. Yes, um, also came in, and and he asked me, um, similar to what you asked me, he said, well, "When did you start program?" So I said, uh, "Probably the first concepts were around uh, 2003." So he said, "He said he made an interesting comparison. So it's like raising a teenager." <laughs> yeah, and I said, yeah. And I said, yes, that's right. It's about time to send a teenager to college. Yeah, right. And, uh, so, so you, but you actually, now, did you actually get to attend the launch of RCM? Yes, I did. So, was, so what was that like? Um, well, um, 
<laughs> let me tell you. Uh, so uh, this is hosted by SpaceX right. uh, in in at Vandenberg, California, okay. because we had a in our which, is, which is about as different from Baikonur as it's possible to be, probably. Oh yes, it is. It is. It is. It, it was a treat. I must admit that. Um, and SpaceX does a really nice job in, in hosting. So we had a morning launch at. Um, 6.30 or 7 a.m. or something local time. And uh, in the evening before, they take you to the launch pad and you, you, you get about, let's say, 300 meters from the rocket. Wow. And, and actually, you can look at it. It's the, long, the, the landing pad where the first stage comes back. And it was this beautiful weather. It was this like, sunny, a nice 25 degrees, an ocean breeze. Sure. It was fantastic. So we have fantastic pictures of, of the event. And then they take you out for dinner at the winery. So right. it, it, the next morning, it's up early to go to the back to the base. And they take you to the... Um, uh, what is it? A gun and rod club or something? Um, a few miles away from the from the launch okay. site, and we were fogged in. Oh, it no. was fog. Could you, could you see anything? <laughs> and, um, well, at five a.m. we thought, "Wow, come on!" At seven, we should lift a little bit, right. or at least at least we should be able to see the engine of the rocket. Right. And um, and they set up these. These bleachers, uh, looking in a certain direction, and it's completely gray. We couldn't see a thing. Really. And then we hear the countdown, and then we hear the rocket, and we are looking and we're looking, and we could not see a single thing. <laughs> so you, you couldn't even see the you nothing. couldn't even see the engines light. No, nothing. absolutely nothing. Wow. So we all ran ran back inside a big tent where where SpaceX had, had set up their their video link. And we watched it, uh, the rest on TV. That's, that's probably about the most underwhelming launch day story I've ever heard. It, it is. Um, <laughs> um, but then there is a one moment, uh, I think a few minutes after launch, the first stage comes back. And, and as it is uh, hypersonic, yes. there's a sonic boom wow. as it returns. And you are very close to the origin of the sonic boom, so that is a very sharp, loud boom, which which was uh, quite spectacular. Yeah. Again, we didn't see well, a single yeah, it's quite thing. spectacular, especially when we can't see it coming at you. That must be a little bit dislocating. Um, actually, SpaceX warned us for that. Yes, you will see the rocket coming back to you, but in clear yeah. weather only. Yeah, you'll hear it coming back to you, anyways. <laughs> So, but it was a fantastic experience, right. and um, it is one of really of those um, uh, milestones in, in your career, in your experience that you really um, uh, something to treasure yes. as you as you as you progress in your career. Well, it's been a very interesting and and varied career, and now uh, now you've moved on again, and uh, and are just uh, working on helping other people live the space dream, right? <laughs> yes, I, I'm now managing Launchpad, and 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 no rockets are harmed yeah, right. in my launch activities. Uh, so uh, um, Launchpad is 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 still a part of MDA, but it's it's an outreach to much much more back to the kind of project I guess that Rapid Eye was in some ways. 
Um, we would love to work more with, with companies like the, the, of that nature for sure at MDA. So about a year ago, we, we started this initiative. Um, and, and, the, and the thought was we, we want to make it easier for companies to work with MDA. Uh, if, if you have an idea or you have a particular product or technology or, or you think that, that MDA is a technology that, that you could right. use um, and you want to have that conversation with, with, with somebody, uh, where do you start? Um, if you don't know somebody, um, that's a really uh, difficult task. Yes, it is. So we create a launchpad so that people just have an entry point to start that conversation, and then you end up with me, and, right. and I have to. So and I have a so, discussion. So you used to be in the business of making an arm and then making satellites, and now you're in the business of making Terranauts. <laughs> And that's my mission. <laughs> well, I can support that. Um, I really want to thank you for, for spending time with uh, Terranauts today. It's a fascinating um, story about a, a you know a, a different kind of journey than maybe we've heard from some other people, but but still very much uh, very much an interesting career in space without ever having leaving leaving the ground. So thanks very much for spending the time with us today, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you very much, and you're very welcome. All right. Thanks, Ian. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.